The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. It's the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change from the studios of X Ray FM. I'm Ann Kirkpatrick. This week on the Nonprofit Hour, Julie Falk interviews Deborah Steinkopf of domestic violence organization Bradley Angle. I think our movement is limited because we're so focused on violence and safety from violence, freedom from violence, which is important, but we need to get to these other um, core life needs for well-being, right? Stability, meaningful access to resources, social connectedness, and self-advocacy. Bradley Engel works closely with Raphael House, so we'll be revisiting our earlier conversation with Megan Kovacs. Domestic and sexual violence are things that have an impact on all of us. They're things that affect our entire community. They're things that impact the health of our entire community. And it's really important and integral for all of us to start having conversations about that. But first, this story from X-Ray FM producer Larissa Cranmer. This is the Nonprofit Hour, and I am Larissa Cranmer. Springtime is in full effect. After the bike ride has ended, the yard work has been done, or the farmer's market has closed, it's time to get together with some friends and family. But now for the age-old question, where to meet? Well, this is the Nonprofit Hour. How about a Portland nonprofit pub or brewery? The Oregon Public House. Have a pint, change the world. Ex Novo. Drink beer, do good. These are the ethos of two Portland pubs whose net profits are being donated to local and international nonprofit organizations. I sat down recently with some of the key players in these two organizations and discussed community, nonprofits, business models, and the best recipe for combining these three ingredients. Located on Deacom and 7th, the Oregon Public House has created a business where people can gather together with friends and family. When you walk into this pub, you will have three menus to choose from food, beverage, and nonprofit. The plan is simple. When you close your tab, you vote for one of six nonprofits whose mission it is you want to support. At the end of the month, the net profit is divvied up according to the percentage of votes cast towards each organization. To be able to cover a wide range of issues, the nonprofits are rotated with two entering and two leaving the rotation each month. To maximize net profit, each organization on tap is required to provide several volunteers to help serve. By using this model, the overhead costs are lowered and the net profit contributions are greater. Here is John Field, the manager and head chef of the Oregon Public House, to tell us more about their business model. We started planning this concept, trying to to make the space into into something really usable and something that would contribute to uh, community participation. Volunteerism in a restaurant had never been done before, and the goal was to open up debt-free. That way, the second we opened, we would be able to start contributing to our mission that was donating and, and supporting these other these other causes. I think we've done a really, really good job of picking organizations to partner with that represent things that, that Portland feels strongly about. We try to have a balance. You know, there's some that are humanitarian things or social things, and some that are environmental causes, and some that are educational causes. So in order to have this community thing, too, we have to be extremely successful at the business or, or this doesn't work. The journey starts with a single step, and this is it. We want to give this whole model away. It's free. Down the road and slightly off the beaten path, I headed over to Ex Novo, located at 2326 North Flint Avenue. Ex Novo is a 10-barrel, non-profit artisan brewery built from the ground up. 
As noted on their website, their focus is on quality ingredients and the mad science it takes to make great beer. It is also on social justice. Currently, Ex Novo's net profits are split evenly between four different organizations whose mission it is to create more just communities. In a town filled with craft breweries and nonprofits, it's exciting to discover that you can combine the two without sacrificing either quality or principle. Here is Joel Gregory, founder of Ex Novo Brewing Company. I think it's important to recognize that we're a brewery that is an, also a nonprofit focused on quality and craft of, of brewing great beer. In fact, that drives our success to be able to make a bigger impact on the nonprofit side. At the end of the day, what do we want that success to mean? Our, our, whole, our whole business model is just geared on, on giving 100% of net profits away to organizations that are doing really great work. As far as picking our nonprofits go, we chose two local and two more global reach organizations. Uh, the local ones here are Impact Northwest and Friends of the Children, and globally we work with Mercy Corps and International Justice Mission. The nonprofit sphere has been great. Everyone just wants to know kind of how they can be involved and how they can help out, and it's it's a great great community to be with on the on the nonprofit side and then the beer side of things. Yeah, the brewing community here is amazing and collaborative and helpful, and yeah, it's just been just been a great great place to be. The Oregon Public House is warm and embracing, and Ex Novo is open and inviting. Here are two pubs offering experiences quite distinct from one another, but at the heart of both of these establishments are a new business model with a new kind of profit sharing. Profit sharing that we can all contribute to. All cheers to that. What charity would you like? Uh, X-ray FM. Yeah! <laughs> Larissa's story was produced as part of the Media Institute for Social Change's Radio U program in partnership with X-Ray FM. Now for our host, Julie Falk. This is the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. I'm Julie Falk, and today I'm talking to Deborah Steinkopf, Executive Director at Bradley Angle. Bradley Angle is the oldest domestic violence shelter on the West Coast and is turning 40 years old this year. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Good morning, Julie. It's really exciting to talk to you today. And i um, I would love to hear more about um, where Bradley Angle is today on Turning 40. Mm, I would love to answer that question. Um, well, we have a very rich legacy as um, the West Coast's first domestic violence shelter. So we've been doing domestic violence intervention work for four decades. And over that time, we've, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about what survivors need to, to heal and to rebuild their lives. And so very early on, we knew that shelter wasn't enough. Safety isn't enough, although that's um, a core service and very important. But what survivors need um, in order to rebuild their lives is housing stability, economic security, access to um, resources if they want to pursue criminal justice or um, if they're involved in civil legal issues such as divorce and um, child custody. So what we've done over the past four decades is build um, what we call in the social service world wraparound services. Um, and the wraparound services at Bradley Engel are very robust. We have our shelter and then at our resource center, we um, offer support groups every day of the week almost. Um, and 
economic empowerment programs that um, offer financial education and asset building tools such as match savings accounts, um, individual development accounts that help our program participants meet vocational and educational goals. We also have um, a culturally specific program for uh, survivors who identify as black and African-American. It's called Healing Roots. Um, and that program offers support, individual support, support groups, um, and healthy relationships classes, and a lot of family support. And then we also offer the state's only culturally specific program for LGBTQ survivors. Um, and that's a really rich resource because the prevalence of intimate partner violence is just as high in LGBTQ relationships as it is in heteronormative relationships, which is often a surprise for people to hear. So we are a resource for survivors from that community as well. And then our, our last program, oh, I should mention our housing assistance program, where we provide rental assistance and intensive case management for families who just need um, a little bit more help after an emergency shelter stay. And folks in that program are enrolled for up to a year. And then we have a, a youth and family support services team that do work across our programs and sites to support children, help them heal from trauma, help their parents understand trauma and the impact of domestic violence, and really work to build the parent-child bond. And that's really really good and exciting work because that's our upstream approach. Mm -hmm. That's where we really try to um, disrupt the intergenerational cycle of violence. How do survivors find out about your services? Um, any number of ways. A lot of them find out about us from um, our community partners. They may go to the Gateway Center for Domestic Violence to get an order of protection or for immediate sort of crisis intervention. And we have a navigator who's based there a couple of days a week. And she refers, does sort of what we call warm transfers mm -hmm. to our services at our shelter or at our resource center. Um, we get referrals from emergency room doctors from the police, um, from friends and neighbors. And then a, a big referral source, of course, is our community's crisis line, which is the Portland Women's Crisis Line. Mm -hmm. And how, how many um, clients is Bradley, does Bradley Engel work with um, on a regular basis? What's your average? In a given year, we serve between 500 and 700 individuals and families. Mm -hmm. um, at our shelter, we have nine rooms. So we can serve nine survivor households at any one time, and that includes children. So there are usually between 20 and 23 people living in the shelter at any given time. Um, I should also mention we're always full, mm -hmm. and we um, turn away a lot of folks. We have a turnaway rate of 94%, which gives mm -hmm. you an idea of um, how great the need is for emergency shelter beds in this community. Um, and in, over the course of a year, we serve about 78 uh, adults and children in our shelter. And I say adults because we don't just serve women. We also serve um, survivors who are male-identified and, and some... Um, and we also serve survivors who are trans, um, which is a really important thing to know about Bradley Engel because it's a safe place. Um, and for... how long has that been the case at, at Bradley Engel, serving male-identified and trans Survivors. At our shelter, um, I think since 2009. So that mm -hmm. was a relatively new development. We'd always, 
We've always had services for, um, you know, it was called the Sexual Minorities Program back in the day. Mm -hmm. But we opened up our shelter to male-identified folks in about 2009, and we were the first shelter. And I think we may still be the only shelter in Oregon that does so. Um, Most shelters are gender-exclusive, sort of women-identified. Yeah. And what is the average day for folks in those, those nine rooms? 60 days is the um, length of stay. It's mm-hmm. um, the maximum. And it's and people mm-hmm. sort of really push up against the 60 mm-hmm. days, largely because it's it's hugely difficult to find affordable housing in Portland, as I'm sure you know. Um, the vacancy rate is low, and the affordable um, apartment units are further and further into East County. So we're really struggling with um, finding or helping our program participants find affordable units um, closer to the city center, closer to their communities where they are socially connected and embedded, where their kids go to school, where they have access to transportation and jobs. It's 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 not just a huge challenge in this town. It's a crisis. Mm-hmm. What are the options for those that, that 94% of people who you have to turn away? Um, we try to do it in um, as gentle a way as possible by presenting options. We direct people to 211-INFO, um, which is the access point for the homeless family system. Mm-hmm. So our hopes are that if someone really needs emergency shelter, um, they can maybe go into the homeless family system. Um the Portland Women's Crisis Line has a number of hotel vouchers that they can um, distribute to callers um, who are really fleeing dangerous situations and, and need an emergency hotel stay. So that is an option. Um, and just do a lot of safety planning. I think one of the um, core areas of expertise that domestic violence advocates have is just being able to really work through a safety plan with a survivor of domestic violence um, to make sure that she she has some options for safety, even if she's staying in the abusive situation. And it's a very nuanced, very customized, very individualized safety planning. Um, and we spend a lot of time with folks who call our shelter access line, and that's certainly um, the expertise that people get when they call PWCL as well. Mm-hmm. So. So, Deborah, you brought some music to share with us today. What did you choose? True Colors by Cindy Lauper, um, just because I came of age in the 80s, and that's just kind of an iconic song for me. Um, and I just love her sort of lilting voice. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking to Deborah Steinkoff, Executive Director at Bradley Engel. 
You call Bradley Engel an anti-poverty organization. Can you talk more about the relationship between domestic violence and poverty and how Bradley Engel addresses it? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I think I started to talk about that earlier when we recognized early on in our history as an organization that safety wasn't enough. And in the last couple of years, we have um, decided from a very strategic level to address the intersection of violence and poverty and trauma and oppression, systemic oppression, because that's the lived intersection um, or that's the intersection where a lot of our participants um, live. And so um, being an anti-poverty organization for us means providing opportunities to build economic security, which ultimately will help disrupt the cycle of violence. And we know that cycles of poverty, cycle of violence um, are interconnected and commingle and interact with each other in profound ways to really work to destabilize families. So by being an anti-poverty organization, we are very intentional about offering um, economic empowerment resources and tools for the people who come to us for help. And um, we also took a stand as an organization this last budget cycle to ensure that everybody who works for Bradley Engel earns a living wage. So starting July 1, everybody who works for my organization will have a base compensation rate of $15 an hour. And we are... um, really proud to be able to do that. But I have to say, (laughs) it is not, um, it wasn't easy uh, financially for us to make that commitment um, because of the way we are funded by government government agencies. It really comes from our own um, fundraising efforts and success in engaging the community to support our work that we're able to offer that rate. Um, so we're really grateful to have so many good community partners to, so we could do that. Um, that makes so much sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just another way it seems like Bradley Angle is really out front in the work that you do. Um, th- what is the state of domestic violence um, work on a national level? It's a really good question. Um, and I'm going to be honest and say I'm not sure I'm the best person to speak to it, but I could certainly um, share with you from where I sit um, as the head of an organization and as someone who also sits on the board of the Oregon Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. I believe um, that we are um, both a movement, a social change movement, and a social service field. Um, We started off sort of in movement. Um, the Violence Against Women movement in the early 70s, and Bradley Ingalls' history is parallel to the growth of the movement. Um, We've had a lot of successes in terms of um, developing policies and systems to address domestic violence in a really survivor-centered and informed way. We, you know, we have the Violence Against Women Act, um, and we have a lot of state legislation as well that offer protections to survivors and resources for um, victim services. Um, But I think we're at a crossroads as a field and a movement because our focus has been on safety, right? Mm -hmm. And our definition of success is the absence of violence. 
but the lived experiences of survivors and how survivors define success is very different. And it's not often the absence of violence. It's often, um, you know, getting a job, getting satisfaction from that job, um, achieving financial security, improving their relationship with their kids, being part of a community, um, all of that are sort of richer and, and speak to sort of the basic necessities of life, right? Safety, yeah. Stability, yeah. But often also meaningful access to resources, um, social connectedness, and that sense of self-efficacy, right? So I think our movement is limited because we're so focused on violence and safety from violence, freedom from violence, which is important, but we need to get to these other um, core life needs for well-being, right? Stability, meaningful access to resources, social connectedness, and self-efficacy which means a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. So if we're not doing intersectional work, we're not going to get there. Um, and, I, and I don't think the domestic violence service delivery system is the only service delivery system that is caught in that um, sort of view of sort of trying to be sort of a single issue um, uh, approach to, to this work. I feel like um, everybody behavioral health, you know, criminal justice, we all need to do some boundary crossing here mm -hmm. and develop some strategic partnerships so that we can address people's lived experiences more holistically. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So so um, with this holistic approach, um, what organizations or systems does Bradley Angle partner with um, locally? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, well, we partner with organizations within the domestic violence service community here. Um, we're deeply partnered with Raphael House, and mm -hmm. I know you've had Megan on the show here. Um, we've worked really hard with Raphael House, who also provides um, shelter to survivors fleeing danger, um, to really create um, sort of streamlined ways of learning about the availability of shelter beds and accessing them. So before, if a survivor called Portland Women's Crisis Line, um, they, would get a no they would get the number to our shelter-based crisis line, Raphael House's shelter-based crisis line, on and on and on. They would get a lot of numbers, and, what, and they would call repeatedly, which is why our, our turnaway rate historically has been so high because a lot of those are repeat callers. We know that. So what we've done with Raphael House is just sort of combine our shelter access lines. We use the same call menu. We let people know um, in the recorded message if there's bed space um, and to dial one to learn about sort of eligibility because we do screen for safety um, or for danger. That's a sort of a defining criteria to enter our shelter. We just don't have enough capacity to serve people who are homeless. Mm -hmm. um, they have to be fleeing domestic violence. Um, and then, uh, you know, we offer the same menu, so they're getting the same message from both organizations. And you can call either shelter access line and get information about um, bed availability at both spaces. And it seems like a small thing and a fairly obvious thing, but um, it's not. It's not the way our system has worked before, so it's a, it's a definitely a, a great improvement. All right, Deborah. Um what else did you bring for us to listen to today? Mm, Blue Indigo by Nina Simone, which has some of the most beautiful piano riffs I've ever heard. And she's, it's just soulful.
ain't never been blue till you've had that mood and go that feeling go stealing down to my shoes while I just sit here and sigh go long This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking to Deborah Steinkoff, Executive Director at Bradley Engel. Deborah, I'm sure we would like to imagine a world uh, free from violence. Um, but I'm also curious, um, before that reality, what is, your, what is your utopian vision for a system that is able to support survivors? What does that look like? You've talked a lot about, you know, systems that are broken. What what systems need to be repaired in order to support survivors in our community? That's a wonderful question. Um, I don't think as a community and as a nation, we are going to be able to really move the needle on the dial of this um, until we change our culture and until we're able to, and I, I think we're getting there, we're certainly not at a turning point yet, but um, until violence against vulnerable people, including the people we live with and share our homes with, um, is not tolerated. And violence against women and children has been historically tolerated and even sanctioned in some ways. So I think we have to make a cultural shift. And I think that's been a lot of really great community conversations because of the you know, the high-profile NFL case mm-hmm. and other high-profile cases like that, and um, because men are taking responsibility, right? So some of the um, uh, campaigns around campus sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, where all students, in particularly male students, are taking responsibility, taking, you know, that sort of bystander role, um, I think is movement, and that's helpful. So there's the cultural shift that's needed, and I don't. And, and the other big change I think that we need to address as a community, and as a nation, is wealth disparities. Until we really address, effectively address, wealth disparities in this country, I believe that uh, vulnerable individuals, vulnerable families, vulnerable communities are going to be struggling with a whole lot of stuff, violence being one of them, um, because it's just, they're just patching together their lives. They're just living on the edge. Um, And in this town, I'm sorry, I call Portland a town, (laughs) big city girl, in Portland, um, the affordable housing challenge is just huge. I mean, think about what we're doing here. You know, whether you think it's by design or not, or by default, we are pushing communities of color and vulnerable communities out of the city core. You called it a crisis earlier. Are there any threads of hope um, for change, for um, for changing that that part of the identity of the city to have more affordable housing? What what kind of advocacy efforts are you supporting? Mm-hmm. Um, we are part of the Welcome Home Coalition, the Oregon Housing Alliance. Um, local and statewide advocacy groups are working hard. Um, 
to develop anti-displacement policies um, and to, you know, uh, do to to get some um, to stop the movement, I guess, of developers just taking over properties, especially in North and Northeast Portland. So there was a set aside in the city budget for land banking, and that was a, a, a huge campaign by the African-American leadership here to get some money set aside just to bank some land so it doesn't get scooped up by developers. And then certainly um, initiatives to ensure that developers set aside a certain number of affordable units. So those are all sort of in motion and happening. Um, some people feel like the trains already left the, sa- the station and and that access to affordable units in the city core is just no longer a possibility. Um, I'm holding out that we can sort of maintain and maybe build um, a little bit um, in, in the city core. And one of the things that we've done um, in the last year that's worked for us is to develop strategic partnerships with the CDCs, mm-hmm. Community Development Corporations, because they're the ones who are building affordable units still in the city core and maintaining a portfolio of affordable units in the city core. So we've worked with um, PCRI, Portland mm-hmm. Community Reinvestment Initiatives, which are in North Portland, very near our offices here, and um, REACH, which has a pretty big footprint citywide. Um to for them to set aside a certain number of units for families who are enrolled in our housing assistance program and the beauty of that partnership is that you know these are affordable units they're in the city core we are able to come in and provide the case management and advocacy support to make those families good tenants and successful tenants. And we're able to provide rental assistance. And then when we pull out, um, in terms of our rental assistance, there's, they're in a unit they can maintain, right? Because we've worked with them for a year to build their economic security um, and self-sufficiency through enrollment in our economic empowerment program, right? So by the time we pull out with our rental assistance, it's still an affordable unit and that family doesn't have to be displaced yet again. Mm -hmm. So I'm really hopeful about strategic partnerships like that. And and those are cross-sector partnerships. So that's what we need to be doing. So for people who are who are passionate about these issues, um, how can they be involved in Bradley Angle and the work that you're doing as advocates? Mm-hmm. Um, we use volunteers in a number of ways, especially around the shelter. You know, mm-hmm. maintaining a 24-hour living facility is um, is a huge challenge. We're all social workers, and we've had to learn to be building managers <laughs> as well, which is... Um, been fun and interesting. I, you know, I feel like I know more about roofing than I ever needed to know, even as a you know homeowner myself. Um, so we engage the community in helping us with with that. We have um, people who come and work on the grounds of the shelter and a little community garden at the shelter, and they work with the kids in the shelter in the community garden, which is really sweet, um, and just help us maintain the facility. Um, we have volunteers who come make meals for shelter residents or meals for people who are meeting in support groups or financial education classes at the Resource Center. We have volunteers who teach those um, financial education classes and Mm -hmm. lead other workshops, and then volunteers who help with the kiddos. So there's different ways to get engaged. I would encourage anyone who wants to be involved in Bradley Engel to check out our website at www.bradleyengel.org. 
That's great. Thank you. Well, Deborah, it's been great talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about about Bradley Angle and about all the different um, issues that are really important to our community that are important to survivors and to changing the culture of violence in our community. So thank you for talking to us today. What's the last song you brought for us today? Oh, Chrissy Hines, because she's um, a badass. And it's uh, Stand By You. And I feel like it's um, really a wonderful symbol of my work as um, a a leader and an advocate in the anti-violence work that we do. I feel like we all stand by survivors on their journey to, to healing and hope. I just love that song. Thank you, Deborah. so sad the tears are in your eyes come on and come to me now but don't be ashamed to cry let me see you through cause I've seen the dark side too when the night falls on you you don't know Welcome back to the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change and produced in the studios of X-Ray FM. After hearing Deborah Steinkopf's discussion of domestic violence and the work Bradley Engel is doing here in Portland, we're now going to take a look back at our interview with Megan Kovacs of Raphael House, a domestic violence organization that works in close partnership with Bradley Engel. This is Phil Bussey. It is the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour, and I am talking with Megan Kovacs, from the from Raphael's house from Raphael House. Let me do that again. I'm talking with Megan Kovacs of Raphael House. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. We really appreciate you coming in. And so Raphael House is you are the education coordinator there, correct? I am. And it is the second oldest domestic violence shelter in Portland. Tell me uh, what what an education coordinator does uh, at a domestic violence shelter. Absolutely. So we recognize um, as a movement and at Raphael House specifically and especially that domestic violence is something that impacts a lot of people in our community and impacts a lot of people directly. And we need resources and support services um, to provide you know, healing and help and housing and lots of different things for people who are directly experiencing domestic violence right now or have in the immediate past. Um, But what we also know is that domestic and sexual violence are things that have an impact on all of us. They're things that affect our entire community. They're things that impact the health of our entire community. And it's really important and integral for all of us to start having conversations about that, to, you know, not only to help provide better support for people who are experiencing it, but to hopefully try to stop it from happening, to prevent it from happening, to look at the reasons why this happens, the things that exist in our community, the social norms that exist in our community that allow for this to happen, and how we can unpack and challenge and change those things. 
So does that come through uh, education campaigns or is that coming through one-on-one discussions? What 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 are you putting out there then? So it's in a number of different ways. So we provide education in the community in a number of ways. Um, Most broadly, we go into high schools, I go into high schools and middle schools and talk to teenagers um, about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality. So really promoting what it means to have healthier norms in relationships, what it means to like understand how to treat a partner with respect, how to have healthy communication, how to practice equality in relationships, essentially. Um, And that, along with that, um, that kind of one-on-one education or education in health classes, um, you know, I also work on some prevention policy, both locally and statewide. Um, So working in Multnomah County and in the state of Oregon to help all of us, you know, have these conversations in better ways um, to, you know, help parents reinforce these messages with their kids to, you know, talking with legislature legislators to um, help them better understand the ways that policy impact the people who are both experiencing this and our entire community. I, w- I want to talk first about the the work that you do with the, with the teenagers and high schoolers. I know it's hard to generalize, but where are you seeing the starting point for most of these teenagers as far as their understanding of what's a healthy relationship? Are they far along in that process or is it a half-baked idea? Is it on often on the wrong track and you're re-gearing or is it often on the right track and you're just encouraging it to go further? I think that depends on where I am and who I'm talking to oftentimes. Like geographically where you are? Yeah, I mean, in Oregon, in the, you know, in the state of Oregon, in Portland, even depending on where you are, people, communities have very different understandings of what's normal and what's healthy and, you know, what makes sense or what a relationship should look like. Um, And that is communicated in lots of ways, especially to youth. Um, you know, we don't have always the healthiest messages in our media about what relationships should look like or um, how we practice healthy things in relationships. Um, so I will say over the course of I, I've been doing this work for about eight and a half years and I have seen a shift in how people talk about this and people's willingness to talk about this, which has been really nice. Um, I think that when I first started, there were a lot more conversations about why this even needed to happen. And I found that over time, there's more and more attention being paid to the necessity of this education early and often. I mean, and that, that's obviously it's such a huge topic, but I, I, you know, I see things certainly like uh, over the last couple of years, the NFL, for example, which has not never been really the 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 the, the bastion of <laughs> forward thinking of treatment or presentation of women, but in the last couple of years, the NFL not having a tolerance uh, for uh, several players um, uh, assaulting women, I would think that that could have an impact, uh, you know, especially on. Uh, boys who have some of these these NFL players as stars. I think that I think that that's true, and I think that the attention that has been paid in the media to domestic and sexual violence has really created an opportunity for more conversation. It's really created an opportunity um, for us to have broader conversations as you know 
as a society about like why this is happening. Like what are the things that cause it to happen? Unfortunately, I think we oftentimes deal with this after it already has, right? We oftentimes, you know, the NFL is responding to a problem. They're not being proactive in looking at why this happens and how they support that happening um, through, you know, fairly unhealthy portrayals of masculinity um, and allow for that to be perpetuated um, and also kind of devaluing and sexualizing and stigmatizing women as well. Um, so both of those things that they are are known for, right, are things that allow for violence happening. And, you know, although they are certainly responding to problems as they come up, they're not really looking at the long-term like and bigger bigger picture impact what are some of those uh positive uh uh, precursors or or role models that that are out there in the media that that you've started to see in the last you know 10 years of your of your career yeah i mean i think there's some great work being done um especially by i mean a lot of nonprofits, right a lot of um agencies there's an agency called futures without violence um that is addressing violence in sports culture right and healthy masculinity and how we promote that so um portland public schools and we are actually working at raphael house with portland public schools and the defending childhood initiative in multnomah county to um pilot a um, program called Coaching Boys into Men. So it's a program for sports coaches to teach their male student athletes about healthy masculinity and healthy relationships. So we're seeing more and more attention being paid to like, how do we actually just make things healthier? And which is absolutely, that's a very difficult challenge to have. Absolutely. Uh, this is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with Megan Kovacs from the Raphael House. We're going to take a short musical break and we'll be right back. Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour. I am pleased to be talking with Megan Kovacs from Raphael House today. Now, now Raphael House is it's the second oldest domestic violence shelter in Portland. What what do you know about the history of uh, how the shelter came about, and then also how its function has changed over the years? Um, so. In the, you know, late 60s and early 70s during, you know, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, people started paying more attention as a culture to domestic violence and how often it was happening. Um, You know, those social justice movements really gave names to things that people and definitions to things that people didn't previously have names and definitions for. Um, And that then resulted in a lot of, or at least some, resources being developed in the community. Um, So things like domestic violence shelters started popping up. Not that, you know, domestic violence 
quote unquote shelters didn't exist. They before they were just you know people's houses. Um, a hotline was someone's kitchen phone. Um, the lady in the you know community who was identified as the person who would help you if you needed that support. Um, so it became a more formalized process, you know, sort of in the seventies, and that's when um, Raphael House started, and it was just by a group of people who you know really who knew that this was a problem, who understood that this was a problem, and knew that our community needed better types of support for people who were experiencing domestic violence. And and I would think that it's not only providing the shelter, but I mean, it must be a very scary prospect. Somebody needs to reboot their life. Mm-hmm. They need to find uh, new context for it, new social structures, potentially new jobs. I mean, and, and how much does the Raphael House provide that and, and how what 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 does it provide in the, in terms of those resources? So we really focus on providing holistic support. We're the largest shelter in Multnomah County um, and one of the largest in Oregon. Um, and we really try to support every family that comes to Raphael House from the m- minute they walk in the door with the things, the basic needs that they have. So you know, clothing, food, toothbrushes. Um, And through that process, really working with them to help them set goals for themselves about like what healing is going to look like for them, Um, what really thinking about, you know, what they need in their life and how they are going to, you know, find those things and access those things. And that's really our role um, as advocates at Raphael House is to help a family through that process, right? Help connect them with the resources. We oftentimes, you know, refer to ourselves as gatekeepers because we know what all of the systems look like. And domestic violence survivors have to interact with pretty much every system that exists from the Department of Human Services to the housing system to the homelessness system oftentimes. Um, So advocates work with families to help make connections um, to all of those systems and help support them through that process. And everything from, you know, supporting them by actually physically being there to helping them know how to tell their story to a DHS caseworker versus how they're going to tell their story in court. Um, We also, you know, provide resources like support groups and counseling, things to help a person heal from the trauma of domestic violence. Um, We have job skills training classes. We have ready-to-rent classes. We have financial planning classes. Um, We have a really great program called our Advocacy Center, and that's a space for families to come back and continue to access resources. Um, They can access resources in the Advocacy Center while they're in shelter and also after they've left for as long as they need to um, and keep coming back to, you know, go to support groups and stay connected with the community and stay connected with advocates. Um, they We also do more fun things like wellness nights. Like we have volunteers come in and give haircuts and give massages and, you know, just make people feel supported and help people to feel supported and heal from what they've experienced. We also um, have a really 
pretty strong focus on helping people access safe, affordable, and long-term housing. Um, our shelter is an emergency shelter, which means people can't stay very long. And after um, experiencing the trauma of domestic violence, oftentimes people do need a safe house. Um, they need somewhere to stay immediately afterward. But after their stay at shelter is up, um, we want to help them transition into safe, affordable, and long-term housing. And we know that's very difficult in Portland, especially right now. Um, so we have two full-time advocates on staff who work with families both while they're in shelter and also after they've left to help continue to support them um, for you know up to two years after they've left shelter. Um, Megan, can you talk some about the numbers um, in Multnomah County? How many cases of abuse there are, uh, how many uh, families, how many women uh, is Raphael House working with? Uh, what, what, what sort of scope can you help outline? Sure. Um, statistics and I'm not entirely sure about statistics in Multnomah County specifically, um, but we know that nationally, one in four women experience domestic violence. Um, so this is something that happens to a lot of people. And not everyone needs to come to shelter who is experiencing domestic violence. But we also know that even the people who do need to come to shelter, oftentimes there aren't enough resources there. Um, there are only three shelters in Multnomah County. And I can say, you know, in the past eight and a half years of working at Raphael House, there's never a day when we're not full. There's never a day when there aren't multiple people calling um, to access our shelter or to you know try to find resources in the community to help support them through the process of having experienced domestic violence. Um, so this is there's a huge need in our community for resources and for supporting people who are experiencing this. This is the Nonprofit Hour with Phil Basia. I am talking with Megan Kovacs from Raphael House. We're going to take another short music break, and we'll be right back. We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. A marriage can be a source of joy and love and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, housed up, round round in it, blossom on it. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm Phil Bussey, talking with Megan Kovacs from the Raphael House. What one of the things that 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 you've talked about uh, is is not only providing uh, the care and the immediate uh, assistance, which Raphael House uh, does, but also this idea of, of preventative medicine of sorts. And you work with a lot of legislators. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this Multnomah County Defending Childhood Initiative, or is it an initiative? Yes. 
what does that what does it mean? How does it work? What's the impact? Um, so that was that was started through a grant, um, I believe, through the Department of Justice, um, and we are one of eight sites nationally. Um, so in Multnomah County, we have a domestic violence coordination office. Um, so Annie Neal is our domestic violence coordinator in Multnomah County, um, and. That office houses the Defending Childhood Initiative, which um, is something that I work very closely with um, on implementing the Coaching Boys into Men program. And they, um, the folks who work on the Defending Childhood Initiative also work very closely with Portland Public Schools to make sure that, um, you know, there's a focus and intention on understanding the trauma that kids experience, understanding, um, you know, the adverse childhood experience measures um, and how that has impacts on children's behavior and children's development and children's learning throughout the course of their school life. Um, they, the Defending Childhood Initiative, Erin Fairchild, is the coordinator of that program, and she works really closely um also with the Multnomah County Youth Commission, which is another great um, youth-led body that focuses on addressing domestic and sexual violence as well as police violence and gang violence and other types of violence that ha- um, youth have identified affects them. Um, so there's a lot of work being done in Multnomah County to really look at and think about how this affects our community largely. I want to talk a little bit about the just organizational challenges that a place like Raphael House has. I mean, obviously doing great work, both providing immediate shelter um, as well as uh, this sort of wider trying to shift some of the, the, the paradigms and the attitudes and the behavior. How does it get funded? We rely on so much support from the community. Um, We do get some funding from government grants, um, from the state and from the county, but really it is the generosity of our community that keeps us running. Um, We could not do it without people in our community really recognizing that this is something that needs to continue to exist. Yeah, that's tough because, I mean, oftentimes uh, preventative programs like the Defending Childhood or the Outreach in Portland Public Schools, those are programs that that a uh, uh, dollar spent now is $10 saved later, whether it's emergency uh, medical services or it's uh, prisons or whatever it is. But those are often not... Uh, the easiest to to attract funding to, unfortunately. They're not very tangible. Education and prevention aren't tangible things, right? We can't, you know, commodify essentially how much education or is actually preventing um, domestic violence from happening. How much domestic violence are we preventing? That's a hard thing to measure in the short term, right? Um, but I think that our community has really gained an understanding more and more of the importance of it and the importance of investing in, you know, the long-term prevention efforts. And and how is uh, how is Multnomah County doing compared to 
other counties that you know of, either within Oregon or or nationally? Um, I think that we do have some really progressive programs, and we do have some really great infrastructure, not only in Multnomah County, but in Oregon as well, especially around domestic and sexual violence prevention. We have a lot of really great efforts that happen. I chair a committee for the Attorney General Sexual Assault Task Force. There's also We also have a coalition that addresses domestic and sexual violence statewide, um, you know, and we have some really great prevention policy in place in schools as well. We have a Healthy Teen Relationship Act that was sponsored by now Multnomah County Commissioner Jules Bailey um, that requires all schools to address healthy relationships and um, have support for folks who are experiencing dating violence. So we have some good infrastructure there. Um, I think that we are very lucky to live in the community that we live in. It's good to hear. It's good to hear. It's nice to be proud of Multnomah County. <laughs> it is. And and so you had started at Raphael House uh, through AmeriCorps, is that correct? I did, yes. That's a uh, AmeriCorps is it's both wonderful but a tough way to get going. And I mean, you have to you have you, to be dedicated. I you, imagine you do. I mean, you have to be. You also have to be privileged enough to be a volunteer, essentially, for a year. Um, but it was an incredible opportunity um, to really see the work that Raphael House was doing and invest myself in that. Um, and then I was very lucky that they gave me a real job after that. <laughs> and so uh, uh, the AmeriCorps program is is a, is a two-year commitment? It was one year. One year? Yeah. Okay. And so, and you've been at Raphael House since then? I have, yeah. Eight and a half years in total. Um, I love this work. Um, you know, I, as an AmeriCorps, started this education program at, in its current form at Raphael House. Um, our executive director was really focused on providing education to the community and not just continuing to provide resources and support as this was happening, but really take that step back and look at why this is happening um, and how we can change that. So she was really invested um, and still is really invested in providing, an, providing education in the community. And, you know, that was having an AmeriCorps start the program, I think, was a really good way to kind of see if that was going to work. Um, and then after that year was up, they decided that it did. Um, and I've been continuing the program ever since. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think, obviously, um, you need to love this work, but it'd also be incredibly difficult to love this work in terms of you are not always seeing the best face of humanity. It's true. And that can be hard and can be challenging. But I think that the benefit of doing education is that it's hopeful. There is hope that things can change. And I have hope that things can change. You sound like a very optimistic person. <laughs> Megan Kovacs <laughs> from Raphael House. This is Phil Bussey. It's This has been uh, an interview with the Nonprofit Hour. We will go out with one more musical selection. Thank you. That's all from the Nonprofit Hour this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Deborah Steinkopf with Bradley Angle and Megan Kovacs of Raphael House. Check out the Nonprofit Hour on Facebook and SoundCloud, or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Nonprofit Hour.
This week's Nonprofit Hour was produced by me, Anne Kirkpatrick. Special thanks goes to Larissa Cranmer for her profile of Ex Novo in the Oregon Public House. Shout out to our hosts, Julie Falk and Phil Bussey, and to the Media Institute for Social Change for making this show possible. This is X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.